chapter 13, verse 31. I'll go ahead and start and read the scripture as you're turning there. The scripture says, so when he had gone out, Jesus said, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him and said, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. And Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, We do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you'd have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Goodbyes. They're often difficult. And that's what's taking place here. Jesus is foretelling his departure. Charles Spurgeon once told of a story of a saint on the verge of dying. And the person next to the dying man said, Oh, farewell, my brother. I shall never see you again in the land of the living. And his friend leaned over and said, Oh, I will see you again in the land of the living. It's where I'm going. This is the land of the dying. And we arrive, as it were, after Jesus had partaken of the Passover meal with his disciples. And it tells us in the first verse of chapter 13 of the same chapter that Jesus knew that his hour had come and that he should depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And what intrigues me about this passage is Jesus never spoke of his death as an absolute, and especially in the way most folks understand death. Well, what do I mean? Well, a lot of folks understand death as something that's some, something permanent, 
There's a finality. There's, there's no impending future. And we see something die and it's a done deal, right? We don't expect it to come back alive. Yet Jesus never referred to his death as something permanent. Remember, he began to tell his disciples that he was going to die on repeat occasions. He tells them in Matthew 16, 21, Mark 8, 31. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Matthew 20, 18. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death. Mark 9.31, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. So the disciples know. He's been speaking to them. Going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. I'm going to resurrect. And he'd been repeatedly giving these instructions, and now he, he, he talks about his death, but it's not just a component of God's plan. There's more to that. Uh, the other component was the resurrection, and the other component was his departure. And now it, it, it was the time. It was the hour for that fulfillment to occur. Now, please, if you can, if you're here with me tonight, following and tracking with me, imagine this in real time. Sometimes we approach the scriptures and we think, okay, we're reading a story, but put yourself there in the room. Put yourself there with the disciples in real time. You're sitting there. You're laughing. You're enjoying the fellowship. And he was going to die, man. But he was also going to resurrect. And that resurrection meant his departure. He says, His hour had come that he should depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So he provides the following for you note takers. One, the reason for his departure. We see that in verses 31 and 32. We see the preparation for his departure in verses 33 through 35. And we see the bitter sweet of his departure in verses 36 down into chapter 14, verse 11. Let's look at the first point, the reason for his departure. He's about to consummate God's plan for man's salvation. Notice here in verse 31, excuse me, it says, Now the Son of Man is glorified. Interesting, the Son of Man. The first time this title is used in the Gospel of John is back in chapter 1, verse 51. It's where Nathanael meets Jesus for the first time. And Jesus says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, how, how, how do you know me? And Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus said, Because I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? You will see greater things than these. And verse 51 says this, Moses, surely I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God descending and descending upon the Son of Man. Folks, Jesus never hid his humanity. 
He is 100% God and 100% man. In the 12 times this phrase or this title is used in John, this is the last time it is used. What was it like for these guys since they heard him echo this phrase three years earlier? Son of man. The son of man. Oh, the lessons and experiences they had. The very last verse of John's gospel ends with, in verse 25, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which, if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself cannot contain the books that would be written. Ladies and gentlemen, set before us in this passage is the Son of Man, the Son of Humanity, the Son of Mankind. Jesus sees the finish line, and there's just one thing left undone. One thing left undone. The cross, the object towards His glorification. In John 17, 5, He says, Oh, now, Father, glorify Me together with Yourself, with the glory with which I had with You before the world was. What was that like for Jesus? He had this glory which He possessed prior to His incarnation, where previously angels acknowledged and worshipped him, where he was now, he, he now he had taken on flesh like you and I, didn't have that before. He dwelt in eternity past with the Father. Didn't have flesh, took on flesh. What was that glory like? What are we talking about? Well, we get a glimpse of this in the Old Testament, and many of you know the story. Moses, desiring to see God's glory, requested to see. His glory back in Exodus chapter 33. And I'll read the the passage for you in verse 18. It says, And he said, Please show me your glory. And then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion who have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, Here is the place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. And so it shall be, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. Interesting. What was that glory like? The Bible says that God dwells in an unapproachable light, whom no man has or can see. You can pick this up in 1 Timothy 6. What is that like? What is that glory like? Well, whatever that glory is, the Father is going to restore it back to Him. But this time as a resurrected man. Not just back to His previous state. No, He is a man. He's a a resurrected man. Notice in the verse set before us, both He and the Father are going to be glorified in and through each other. And the word glorified or glory appears five times just in these two verses. And the word is doxa or doxaso. It means to magnify, to honor, and to praise. And the Hebrew has a similar, the word is similar, except it conveys something a little bit more deeper. It means splendor. And I like that. Because when I think of glory, I I don't just think of praise and honor. I think of beauty. I think of majesty. I think of something enormous and more bigger than me, obviously. You know, when you wake up in the morning and you look at the sunrise, 
on the beach. And you go, man, that's, that's glorious. We'll magnify that because that's the Son of God. The Son and the Father are displaying each other's importance and, and greatness. You know, J.B. Carter, he, he, he's helped write lexicons. He said, God has made a full display of His glory in the person of the Son of Man. God is putting His Son in full display for the whole world to see. You know, um, Arturo Toscanini, he's a famous and well-known Italian conductor. And, but he was also known for his, his ego. He had a large ego. And one evening he was conducting Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, and it was a brilliant performance. The audience was in a frenzy. The people were clapping. They were whistling. They were stomping their feet. And they were caught up in the greatness of this man's performance. As Tuscanini stood there, he began to bow. And he began to bow. And he bowed. Then he directed his attention towards the orchestra to, to give them, you know, to acknowledge who they, what they just did, their, their performance as well. And the people just showered them with applause. And as the applause calmed down and the ovation came down, he, he did something kind of interesting. He, he leaned over towards the, uh, the musicians. And he, and he began to just whisper as hard as he could without elevating his voice. And he says, gentlemen, gentlemen. And they leaned in because they weren't sure. Is he upset? Did we do something wrong? And he says, I am nothing. And that just, that floored them. I'm nothing. And then he says, gentlemen, gentlemen. And, and he says, you are nothing. Then he looked at them again and he said, but Beethoven, he's everything. And that is what God is doing. Jesus is everything. And that is what God is doing. He is putting him in full display for us to see. Here is the Son of God. Came down from heaven, took on flesh, was going to take on the sin of humanity and pay for it. And he's going to resurrect him. He's putting him on full display for us. He's done the work. He is everything. Because he is worthy. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has set down at the right hand of the throne of God. God has put him on full display for us. Then Jesus is telling us to look to the Father as he too puts him on display for us as well. Isn't that interesting? God puts him on display, and Jesus says, No, no, look at the Father. No, no, look at the Son. No, look at the Father. And that's what this passage is really telling us. They're both being glorified in each other. No ego. They're glory in each other. Do you understand the plan of salvation? How God orchestrated this plan from the beginning? This should tell us something about God's plan for us individually. He's not sitting so high in the heavenlies that we show up occasionally as a blip on his radar. God has plans for our lives, and they are not trivial, nor are they pointless. You know, C.S. Lewis said, there's no such thing as an ordinary life. Yet we feel so ordinary, don't we? He says, there's no such thing as an ordinary life. God created you for a purpose. It's to bring him glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
How are we doing? How are you doing? Are you bringing God glory through your life? Don't go with the flow of the world, gang. God has plans for your life. You know, the scripture tells us that he can't stop thinking about you. You know, when I wrap my mind around this this verse I'm going to share with you, it floors me every time I read it. Psalm 139, verse 17 says, How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand of the seashore. God can't stop thinking about you. He's in love with you. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. That's the God we serve. And often we get this image of God that He's up in heaven shaking this iron fist, don't we? Or at least that's the idea that we get, right? Even the world thinks that. You serve this condemning God. He's evil. He wants to take my liberty. But He has a plan for you. And what are they? Well, let me tell you. First, we know that we're to bring glory to God. That I know. The second, now pay attention to this. It's important. I don't know. I don't know His plans for you. I don't know what they are. And, you know, for me, um, that's, it's freeing because I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to worry about someone trying to tell me what to do because I know God has a plan custom-tailored for my life. And you don't have to tell me. The Scripture tells me. The Scripture tells me He has plans for me. So when someone says, well, you ought to do this, you need to go back to the Scripture and find out from God. Because he's the one who owns me, not that person. Maybe that the person wants to manipulate me. I need to go back to the source. I need to go back to God. I should only be concerned over what God wants me to be doing. And again, that's liberating. And Jesus is our greatest example. Though a man, yet he was subject to the Father. He followed his plan. When the world was pressing on him, when the devil was tempting on him, When death was overshadowing him, he never relented. He was subject to the Father and to his plan. And he brought the Father glory and the Father glorified him. That's great hope for us. He has plans. Well, that's Jesus. No, 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 no. That's for you too. Where you're sitting right now, God desires to use you in some form or fashion. You're going to talk to people I will never talk to. You're going to be related to people I'll never be related to. I think you understand. Point two, preparing for his departure. Verse, verses 33 through 35. Again, I'll read verse 33. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I have said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Little children, technion. These are endearing terms, folks. Little children. My kids. That's what he's saying. And notice who he's saying this to. A bunch of grown men. You ever thought about, I mean, And Peter was no wimp. You know, when we read the Gospels, 
you know, when they're, when they're catching the haul of fish, you know, they struggled. Peter gets over there and hauls it in by himself. It's no wimp. These are grown men. He says, my kids, little children. You know, I feel the same way when I, when I take a trip with, with, uh, without my children. You know, I sit down, I begin to explain to them, you know, my expectations I have for them while I'm away. And as I'm explaining, my heart is already missing them. And that's where I'm at. And, and I believe this is the heart of Christ. He, he's, he's talking to his disciples. And he knows how they're going to feel. He, he's going to explain that in a few moments. And, and he's, he's giving these instructions. And he says, my little children. And I'm sure being around him so long, they knew. They sensed the affection for them. And, he, and Jesus begins to announce his departure and their inability to follow after him. He had told the Jews the same thing back in John seven thirty four, chapter 8, verse 21. He says, you will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Imagine this setting again. Jerusalem is busting with pilgrims in preparation of the Passover. I mean, you have pilgrims coming from all over Israel and all over the world. And they obviously were commemorating Israel's deliverance from Egypt. And here they arrived. They just finished eating the Passover meal. And I'm sure it wasn't a big bummer. It was a joyous occasion. I can imagine the disciples, there. they're all laughing. They're having a good time. They're sharing stories. They have communion. They're reflecting upon Passover. And here Jesus washes their feet. And now he begins to, to tell them, he's leaving. I'm going away, guys. And it's time. Judas Iscariot has departed, as the scripture tells us, to betray him. And the only thing left is his death and his return to the Father. And I'm sure this must have, this must have saddened them. They spent three years uh, with him. Three years. You know, it's funny because I was thinking about this. And you're going through your study. You know, what did he tell his disciples in the beginning? Follow me, follow me, follow me. And now he says, I'm leaving. They've been with him three years, for some three and a half. He's leaving. And he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give you. I can just imagine the tone, that you love one another, as I have loved you. If you remember back in Mark 12, 28, one of the scribes asked Jesus, what is the first commandment? And Jesus answered him. He says, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like it, and it's this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself, and there is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus was quoting the law. Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 6. So what's the difference? What's new? What's Jesus talking about? He, and here Jesus says, a new commandment. Notice, I give to you that you love one another and as, and notice, I have loved you. That's the commandment. That you also love one another. New in the sense of never having introduced before. It was fresh. It was new in nature, as I have loved you. Before they just read about it, Jesus illustrated it. 
They saw it. He says, what you saw, now do to one another. Again, yes, we know the Old Testament taught it that we should love God and our neighbor, but Jesus taught it. But he was the embodiment of love. He lived it out. They had been the recipients of it. They weren't just words anymore. They experienced his love. Now he was commanding his disciples to do likewise. You know, the word love here is, I'm sure some of you are going to think, it's agape. It's not. It's agapo. You see, there is a difference. Um, You see, agape is used for God's love towards man. God's love is based on his need, on man's need, rather than his wants. Well, how so, Fernando? Well, for example, John 3.16. We all know the verse. For God so loved the world, he agaped the world, that he gave his only begotten son. Well, what did he give? He didn't give what man wanted, right? What did he give them? What they needed. Gave him God's love. Agapo is a little different. Again, how so? It, it, it does mean to esteem, to love, but it involves the, the directing of my will towards someone or something where I will find joy out of. For example, there was a certain Pharisee who invited Jesus over for dinner. And, and in Luke 11, and Jesus knew their hearts. He knew that they had marveled at how he didn't wash his hands like all the other, other Jews. They're like, who is this guy? And he understood that, and he, he saw it, and he began to rebuke them, right? And in verse 43, he tells them, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love, you love the best seats. You, you love the best seats in, in, the, in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Why do they love the best seats? Because it, it gave them attention. It, it brought attention. It gave them prestige, that's why they love the best seats, right? Why else would you like the best seats? You're the, you're the focal point. People see you and they go, that guy's important. And he said, that's the same word. He says, have that same intent, intense love for one another. Direct your will in the direction of others. Your love, you're to love one another as I have loved you. And as you love on each other, men can't help but recognize that you are his disciples. You see, it's not so much what you do. You know, we get that. People are looking at your lives. But can they see the love you have for one another? That is the distinguishing mark of a believer. What was that like for John as he was penning these words as an old man? Could you imagine? He's reflecting on the scene as he sat there remembering that night, how he ate the meal, had the communion, and Jesus scrubbed his feet, thinking about those words. You know, what's interesting about John is he he has become known in many ways as the apostle of love. Read uh, uh, 1 John. He mentions love in every chapter except the first chapter. Read Second uh, and Third John. Read the book of Revelation. I mean, in First John 3.11, he says, For this is a message you have heard from the beginning, that you, or that we, should love one another. First John 3.23, And this is the commandment, that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us commandment. 4.20, if, if someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, 
How can he love God whom he has not seen? And lastly, 421, and this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must, must love his brother. What is your heart bent, bent towards? What is the thing that you love that brings you the greatest sense of joy? Now, I sit here and honestly, this is a great challenge for all of us, especially when we've been around each other for any length of time, right? I think when you meet someone for the first time, hey, things are great. But the moment you begin to walk with folks for any length of time, you see the flaws. And they ain't so lovely anymore. It's like, you know, Magic Mountain. You go to, I was sharing this with a kid earlier about serving. I said, hey, it's like, you know, we go to Magic Mountain. You, you, you got a job there. The first day is great. You're excited. But after about a month, after six months, the love luster is gone. Now it's work. It, it, ain't, it ain't so pretty anymore. It's the same thing with people. You begin to see the flaws. And they ain't so lovely. I thought they were great. And you realize they're just as messed up as you are. The issue is we love being loved on. It's the loving others that becomes problematic. How do we love the way Jesus loves his disciples? It's loving without expectations. It's loving without obstacles such as bitterness or malice in our hearts. The only debt that we owe a believer or owe one another is to love them. Where do you see that in the scripture? What do you mean it's a debt? Well... Romans 13, 8. Oh, huh. Oh, no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. I hope you learned that tonight. Oh, I don't like that verse. I know. I don't either. <laughs> but I'm to love. I'm supposed to love. It's a mark of a believer. This is our debt to one another. This is our duty. And Jesus epitomized love all the way to the cross. Love, love, as Jesus is stating, is the only way anyone will know that we are his disciples. It's the only way. You know, anybody can give lift service. Let's see your love in action. You know, I'm reminded of a story of Eric Honecker. He had been released from the hospital after he had undergone cancer treatment. And there was probably no single person in all Germany that was despised and hated. Why? Well, once he was a communist dictator, he had been stripped of all his offices and even his own communist party kicked him out. He was thrown out of the plush villa he was living in and the government refused to provide him for, uh, for uh, his new home, nor for his wife. They become homeless and they were living in the street. Well, they became homeless until a Christian intervened. You see, someone brought this, this family to a pastor, Pastor Yul Homer, who ran a Christian help center in the center of Berlin and was asked by a leader if he would be willing to take the Honickers. And Pastor Homer decided it would be wrong to take away a room in the center when it could be used for somebody else that was really needy. So he decided to do something rather interesting. He decided to take him home, his own home. The former ruler of the country was being sheltered by one of the Christians whom he, had, whom he and his wife had despised and persecuted. 
And one of the reasons why they were despised so much is they, they ruled the education system for 26 years. And his wife made sure that Christians didn't have upward mobility. They couldn't ascend to higher education. So Pastor Homer was asked, Pastor Homer, Pastor Homer, why? Why would your family take in the Honikers? Pastor Homer. He says, well, I saw the Lord's command to love one's enemies applied to such cases as this. We have no bitterness in our hearts because we follow our Lord. No obstacles. You see that? No obstacles. There's no bitterness. That's what he expects of us. And yet, we're more than willing to put those obstacles in the way, right? To justify why I can't love somebody. Jesus says there's no such thing. Remove the obstacles. How do you follow the Lord? Is it in just word? Or is it in deed? You see... Folks will know us by the love we have for one another. Movements will come, whether religious, ideological, or political. But how will people identify you as a Christian? Is it by name only, or can they see it? Can they experience the love of Christ through you? Listen, folks, you know, we don't have much time. There's no time to waste. The clock is ticking. I mean, look around you. Never in the history of man have we seen the events unfolding before our eyes that we see today. The nations of the world are in distress. Russia and the Ukraine are in turmoil. Israel and the Middle East are heating up. Our borders are being overrun. You know, I just spoke to a, a border patrol agent. Uh, his mother comes to the fellowship here. And I just you know, got into the conversation about what's going on with our borders. Folks, we're in knee-deep. As someone said, I think we're deeper than that. It's getting bad. You see, he told me how people and drugs are coming over at an unprecedented rate. And I told him if he had heard or if they discovered prayer rugs that Muslims were coming into our country, you know, if they found these prayer rugs, he says they're strewn all along the border. And he confirmed that not only those things, but other things. He also mentioned his greatest fear. He said, you know, most of us are, are going to have to go. We're, we're being rotated. We're being sent to the Texas border. And I thought, oh, to shore up the border? And he, he goes, oh, no. He says, agents are coming back sick. They're coming back with TB and scabies and everything else. He says, and I got to go, and I'm scared. He says, I'm supposed to go down there for 30 days and come back home. What's the latest in our, our, our headlines? Ebola. These folks, they flew in and are on our shores from Nigeria. They're the, you know, do you realize they're the, few, the first human hosts to land in our, our soil with Ebola since the 70s? And in the 70s, they were in primates. And yet we, we fly them in. And I know we're here to help them, but think about that. Think about that. It doesn't take much, does it? And there's no, there's no cure. There's no vaccine. We're a distracted society. Never have we had the type of technology we have at our disposal. We are, as a people, we are slowly divesting our liberty willingly for the sake of convenience. 
you know, a friend of mine here in the fellowship, I was just talking in the hallway, um, he sent me a video. And uh, IBM has put this promo together in which, and I'll try to illustrate it for you, uh, here's this guy dressed in a long trench coat. He looks very sketchy. And he's going to the, the grocery store and he's collecting items and he's putting them in his jacket and, and the camera's following him. But yet the people in the store, you know, the butcher, the store clerk, they're all looking at him. They just kind of give him the evil eye. There's a security guard. He's looking at him. And, but yet he's, he's tucking everything away. And as he makes his way out the store, you can see these scanners at the door. He doesn't see them. And there's a quick flash as he goes through. And then the security guard goes, sir, sir, sir. And he, he, he turns and he's like, oh, great, I'm busted. That's the look he has, right? And then you see out of this dispenser a receipt being printed out. And he goes, you forgot your receipt. Yeah, you see, even thieves, the whole idea was you can't get away with even stealing because if you're chipped, as soon as you walk out with any merchandise, it's impossible to steal. It'll come out of your account. That's the day we live in. Go to Walmart, everything has a chip in it. Why? Because they know they know how much product they have. They know your, your spending habits. It's the day we live in. And we're slowly divesting our liberties. How about emails? How much time do you spend on that? Facebook, Twitter, Internet, television, movies, sporting events. You name it. Uh, let me take a little poll here. How many of you have a Facebook account? Be honest. How many have a Twitter account? Come on, Chris, I know you have a Facebook. <laughs> you see, how many are on it every single day? Yeah. How much time do you lose spent, in, you know, looking at Facebook or Twitter or the Internet or a movie? How much time have we spent in this, knowing our Lord? You see, we're distracted. You know, last week we were on vacation and we stayed in a resort in Mexico and I'm standing in line for check-in and I'm listening to folks check-in and, and, and guess what? What's one of the first questions the, the guest asks the, the clerk behind the, the desk? What's the Wi-Fi? <laughs> what's the code? And, and, and that's, that was just all across the board. What's the Wi-Fi? And their kids, what's the Wi-Fi? What's the Wi-Fi? And as I'm sitting there, I'm kind of chuckling, right? And then they go... All right, well, uh, there's a charge for Wi-Fi. And they go, what's the charge? $80 a week. Like, so as a, reason, as a reasonable father, I did the reasonable thing. No, thank you. And, you know, uh, they did, actually, they did me a favor. I didn't have to fight my family for Wi-Fi. They did me a favor. Hey, kids, there's no Wi-Fi. Bummer. Well, guess what? I got to spend time with my kids. I don't have to worry about that distraction. As soon as we crossed the border, what do you think everyone was doing? And you can see it across the border. Everyone's coming across the border. They're all checking their phones. We're all, dis- we're all distracted. Folks, we don't, we don't know how to have relationships anymore. We've been neutered. We've grown indifferent. We've become numb. And one of the marks of the last days is that love the love of many would wax cold. No kidding. Unfortunately, for many of us, we agapo. We love the things more than we love people. Love has taken on a different definition. Ask the common person today what, what love is. Ask them. 
it'll blow your mind. Ask our youth. They have no concept. They think love is some rap video. That's not love. Not the love that God talks about. I, I say all that in light of the things I just mentioned to ask you this. Have you loved on someone today? I'm being honest. Have you loved on someone today? And when's the last time you demonstrated love? Let me think. Was it yesterday? How about the day before that? How about the week before that? Do I need to go a little further? How about the month before that? The year before that? When's the last time you loved on somebody? Do you see what I mean by distractions? We need to cultivate love for others rather than self. And I didn't say selfie. Self. Okay? He says, by this singular, all will know that you are my disciples. By this. Notice Jesus didn't give us volumes of what to do and what not to do. He said, by this one thing, all will know that you are my disciples. Do yourself a favor when you leave here tonight. Be obedient and love one another or love on either one of your enemies this week, a relative, or another believer. <laughs> and see the lessons that we be born out of it. Folks, it's, it's not a suggestion. It's a commandment. And the world is looking at what... And, and what are they looking at? What are they seeing? Oh, but you don't understand. It's going to cost me. Really? It's going to cost you? What's going to cost you? Your dignity? Your time? Oh, wait. Your reputation. Right? How could, You know, if they see you actually loving on somebody that doesn't deserve it. Oh, God help us. That's what we should be known for. That cranky... In-law, that employer that takes advantage of my hours, that neighbor that lives next door to me, I'm to live on them. Our third and last point, the bittersweet departure. Verses 36 down, all the way down in chapter 14, verse 11. And Jesus answered him, I'm sorry, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. And again, this will become more evident for Peter in chapter 21, where we see Jesus restoring him. We know from church tradition that Peter, as he was being crucified, declared that he was, he was, uh, um, he was not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as, uh, of his Lord. And what do they do? They crucified him upside down. In verse 37, it says, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. And what's interesting is, is how Peter sidestepped Jesus' commandment and focused on why he couldn't follow him. You notice he didn't address uh, the issue about loving one another. He said, I want to follow you now, Lord. I'll lay down my life for your sake. Why can't I follow you now? And, and again, I will say there's an interesting con contrast set before us in that Judas departs. But Peter wants to follow. I thought about that. Judas departs, but Peter wants to follow. And in your life and my life, there are going to be people who will, will fall away and seek after and depart for the world. And there will be those who want to follow the Lord. 
And I, I, I believe that was genuine for Peter. I, I, I don't doubt his sincerity. I think he really wanted to follow the Lord. But Jesus knew that Peter's words were just words. Yet how many times have we spoken or said something similar to the Lord? Lord, I promise I'll never do that again. Lord, I, I, I promise I'll do this, Lord. Lord, that's a great idea. You know what, Lord, if you give me... And, and you, you, know, you know the thoughts. You know the things you've said to the Lord. The promises you've made. Lord, I'll never. We're no different. And the Lord knows. And fortunately, He's full of grace, which you and I need. He says... I will lay down my life for your sake. <laughs> and Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake, Peter? Really? Most assuredly I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Oh, Peter. Imagine how these words impacted Peter as he stood there amongst the others. Peter declares his devotion and Jesus expresses his denial. Could you imagine? That would have been like someone kicked me in the stomach. Lord, I'll lay down my life. No, you're going to deny me. Oh. I think later, as we will see, Peter tried to rectify. I think he tried to prove Jesus wrong. He said, Well, what do you mean? I mean, think about it. the next time we hear of Peter, as you read John, the next time you see him, he's in the garden. And, and we see a detachment of troops that have come out to arrest Jesus. And Peter, in chapter 18, unsheaths a sword and cuts off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. And I think it was his way of saying, Lord, see, I'll defend you. I'll go to bat for you. See, I told you, I, I want to follow you. And we know what Jesus tells him. He goes, you know what? I'm going to drink the cup the Father has prepared for me. Put your sword away. And we know later what happens, don't we? We know the, the end of the story. He ends up denying the Lord. Peter was troubled by the announcement of his departure, but also of his denial. Notice it was a denial, not a betrayal. Big difference. Peter didn't sell him out. He was just scared for his life. Judas sold him out. Peter didn't. He just he denied. He was, he was scared. And Jesus knows his distress, and he says in the in the very next verse. And please note that you know there really shouldn't be a chapter break here, but we have chapter breaks for the point of just making reference. Uh, notice he says here in verse one, Peter, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Jesus says something very interesting. After he had just stated Peter's denial, remember, he just told him this in the previous verse. He says, the the word here for troubled is, is this Greek word which conveys this idea of stirring up, you know, like a, like a, a pond, and you're, just, you're, you're stirring up, you're agitating it. And Peter quite certainly is disturbed in his heart. And the tense in this verse is, do not allow or permit your heart to be troubled. In other words, Peter, chill out. Calm down. I understand you're troubled. 
I know you're, you're, you're prone to weakness. I understand what you're going through. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to blow it. And how I need to hear this today. He's saying, calm down. Let not your heart be troubled. Often, we're well intending towards the things of God and somehow we blow it, either in word or in deed. And the Lord is telling you and me today, hear the word of the Lord. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Stop your heart from being in distress. He says, I'm in control. But they needed to do one thing. Believe in Him. Believe in who He is. To have faith in Him. Then He says, in my Father's house. Interesting. It's interesting because, look, the Jews never related to God in those terms. Abraham was their father. And when Jesus comes on the scene, He begins to speak of His Father in heaven. And the Jews, they're, they're not... They're not comfortable with that. They don't like those terms. How can this man, who is unlearned, untraditional, and unorthodox, speak of God in the relational sense of the word? No one referred to God that way. But this guy's talking about God as his father. In John 5.18, it says, Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father. They wanted to kill him. Because he related to God as his father. He's our father. You know, I remember one of the things I remember the most when I first got saved. You know, you talk, you know Tony mentioned about being dysfunctional this morning. You talking about a dysfunctional family. Um, when I first came to the Lord, um, what, the one thing, the, the most dominant thought that I can remember was God was my father. Because I can count really almost on one hand how many times I saw my father in my life. And I remember, you know, seeing friends who had fathers, movies, you know, this, this ideal that you wish you had a father. And, and all the things that you, you kind of envied. But when I came to the Lord, I, I understood it intuitively that I have a heavenly father. And, you know, uh, though, yes, I had... I had a biological father, but he was not my father. He wasn't around when there was a young man who had questions. He wasn't around when I needed direction. And, I, and you know what? I don't say that with anger or malice in my heart. It, it's just, it is what it is. It, but God was my father, and he was perfect. He says, in my father's house are many mansions. What is Jesus saying? Well, he says, uh, our English word for mansions, unfortunately, is a bad translation. The word here is the word monet, and it means dwelling places. He's telling guys, hey, look, I'm leaving for a purpose. I'm leaving to go prepare dwelling places in heaven for you. For you. Each and every one of us as Christians, as believers who have put our faith in him, right now he is custom making your place. In his father's house. It's not like you're going to have a, a, a home set aside somewhere else. It's going to be in the father's house. You're going to have a room in his house. That's awesome. You should rejoice in that. We're going to be in his home. He said, I'm going to go prepare a place in heaven for you. Now, if it took God six days to create the heavens and the earth, what do you think it's going to look like since he's left almost 2,000 years ago? Hmm? 
to imagine that God would actually consider you and I in creating something special just for us. Not just us, every believer. And look, he's assuming the guys, uh, I'm sorry, he's assuring the guys of the hope of heaven. And if it were not so, he certainly would have told them. He says, I wouldn't give you a false hope. I'm giving you hope. I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And to you and I as believers, it's a real place. It's the hope we have if we should die physically or if we're taken out of this place with the, uh, during the rapture. The non-believer doesn't think so. They assume they cease to exist. Now that is troublesome. Your heart should be stirred for that. They don't have that hope. They think, you know, our thought patterns, the things we... It's all just chemicals going off in your brain. They want to justify that. God has given us His Spirit. He's created us after His own image. That's troubling. But heaven is a place where God dwells. It's His kingdom. It's the place where there's no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering. The place where righteousness dwells. We're not going to have to worry about bills, work, or our health. You know, I came across a story of a quadriplegic. You probably know, uh, Joni uh, Erickson Tata. Joni said, it's ironic. <laughs> he says, in heaven, where I will be able to once again wipe my own tears, I won't have to. Imagine that. I like that. And he says, if it were not so, I would have told you. And if, I go per, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now the Jews' understanding of the Messiah was that he was going to come and set up the kingdom on earth. And they were right to think that. They were right. Yet John is speaking of a different event. He was referring to the church, to you and I. That's who he's talking about. Because that's who he's saving right now. It's the church. And notice he says... I, I will receive you to myself. No doubt referring to the rapture. This event is where our hero will come down from heaven and whisk us away to heaven while the tribulation period takes place here on earth. He's coming again. He's coming again. Are you ready? Are you ready for his return? Now some of you say, well, I've been hearing that message for 20, 30 years. Well, guess what? You're 20, 30 years closer. He's coming again. Notice it's, he's going to come to receive us. And again, side note, it's interesting how people say, there's some circles that say, you know, Jesus never taught about the rapture. Please explain this verse to me. Why would he come again and receive? That's the rapture. That's exactly what he's talking about. I digress. Let's move on. He says, and where I, and where I go, you know, and the way you know. Interesting. At this point, Thomas interjects and he says, hey, we don't know where you're going and how can we know the way? It's interesting because we look at, 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 at Peter. He wants to follow. Thomas, he wants to know. In a few moments, we're going to see that Philip wants to see. Philip wants to, I mean, Peter wants to follow. Thomas wants to know. And Philip wants to see. So Lord, we don't know. We want to know where you're going. And we should be indebted to Thomas for his question because born out of it resulted in one of the most important things 
Jesus had ever said. What does he say in verse 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Most of the translators agree regarding the language expressed here. Jesus is saying emphatically and categorically that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And what I find interesting is the repetition of the definite article in the original language. You say, what is that supposed to mean? Well, to me, it is important because he says, he, he is the way. He is the truth. And he is the life. Think about that. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is saying unequivocally, no one ever came or has or no one ever will or no one is ever going to come to the Father except through Him. There's no other way. You say, say, well, that sounds pretty intolerant. Yeah, it is. He's trying to be very clear. There's only one way and that's through Him. So, So when someone says to you, all roads lead to God, do me a favor. Take them to this verse and have them read it. Don't mess with the verse. Just have them read it and ask them what it means to them. And allow the Spirit of God to deal with their hearts. Don't just sit there and say, well, this is what... No, no, no. Let them read the Scripture and let God begin to minister to them. Because it's going to become very apparent to them. There is no other way. With that one statement, we know he's leveled all other isms, all other belief systems. There's only one way to God, and that's through him. You know... um, when we went to Israel this past year, you know, I'd never gone. It was, it was a great trip. It was my first time going. And they take us to the garden tomb. And in, in my mind, I have reservations because I always think, yeah, it's, it's probably a, a tourist trap or, you know, they say, and it's not certain. So there's, there's that doubt in my mind. But, you know, when we go see where he was crucified in the location of the tomb, you've got to go, you know what, by golly, that probably was the place. And when you go in the tomb, you go, there ain't nobody here. I'd rather believe the, the words of a man who said he was going to die and resurrect and realize his body ain't there. I'll take his words. Because I'll tell you what, we can't find his body today, can we? Where's his body? Yet everybody else, we can go to their tomb and they're there. He's the only one. Guess what? I'll take his words. I believe him. If he had known me, you have known my Father also, and from now on you know Him and have seen Him. Not only did He say He was the way, the truth, and the life, He is saying He is God. Jesus says, if you had known Me, in the Greek, this is a class condition. It could be rendered if and, it might be. If and it's a possibility, or if and it's not. Context is king. The condition here is, since you have not known Me fully, That is, then you would have known my Father also. And from now, now on, you know Him and have seen Him. Think about it. They walked, ate, laughed with Jesus for over three years, but they didn't see that He was the Father. For had they known Him, then they would have known that He was in their midst, that God was, the, the Father was in their midst, in the flesh. Notice, Philip gets into the action here. He says here in verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Hey, just show us the Father. It'll suffice us. 
Let's see him. We'll be content with that. And Jesus said to him, Have I not been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? I can just imagine how Jesus is just communicating with the disciples. The scripture tells us that no one has ever seen God. 1 John 1.18 says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Yet, here we have Philip inquiring, Show us the Father and it will be sufficient. What was it like for Philip to have Jesus look into his eyes and say that? What was that like? He's looking into the eyes of God the Father. What was that like? God, who in sundry times and diverse manners spoke to our fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his own dear Son. God revealed himself in times past through the prophets, but now he has revealed himself perfectly through his Son. If you have seen the Son, you have also seen the Father. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Jesus is saying, all doubt should be removed in so much as the evidence demonstrated by his works. There's the evidence that demands the, the verdict. Look at all that I've done. This would have become even more evident for all the disciples after the resurrection. You know, Paul told us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, he says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Who else has done that? Anybody? All the works that he's done. Healings, the miracles. Back in chapter 11, the res- when he brought Lazarus back from the dead. Think about that. Anybody ever see that? There are plenty of witnesses. He had been dead four days and brought him back to life. And you notice that Lazarus, when you read uh, uh, John 11 doesn't say a word. His sisters can sure talk, but Lazarus doesn't say a word. And when he comes back from the dead, there's no words. And in chapter 12, he's sitting there at the dinner table and it says, Lazarus is there eating the meal. And I'm sure as, as Lazarus is sitting there across the table, he's looking at Jesus and he's looking at him and he's thinking, I know who you are. I know exactly who you are. I was in paradise. I saw the glory. He saw the the Old Testament patriarchs come back from the dead. I know who you are. You are the Son of God. Folks, tonight, if you're troubled, if you're in distress about your finances, your job, your marriage, your family, your health, hear the word of the Lord. Let not your heart be troubled. You're going to hear the same words Jesus told his disciples. Believe. Believe in him. Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, He's going to come and receive us unto Himself. That's the hope we have as believers. He foretold this to His disciples. He was leaving. And everything you ever read about Jesus, He has never, ever lied. Ever. He says He's going to come receive us unto Himself. That's the promise He has for us if the Lord should tarry. He's going to come for us very soon. Let's pray.
Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, thank you for this passage. Lord, thank you for just the lessons born out of the lives of these men, the questions they asked and the things that you responded to. Lord, these are the same questions we have. And yet, you're perfect. Lord, you, you died for our sins. And, and Lord, you desire, Lord, that we too would be recognized by the love we have for one another. And Lord, we only know that happens if we walk with you. And if you're here tonight, and we're not here to embarrass you, but the reality is if you don't know God, He wants to be known by you. He wants to enter into your heart. He wants to forgive you your sins. And I'm going to repeat these words. And if you want to accept them, you can do it tonight. And this is just a simple prayer you could repeat after me. Father, I come to you and I acknowledge I'm a sinner. I ask you, Lord, to cleanse me of my sins. I believe Jesus is your son and he's, he saved me from my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Help me to walk after you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.